So I am sat with some random but memorable stickers on my desk. They're huge. They are comically large, I must admit. I got the measurements slightly wrong. I think <laughs> they should be about half that size, but I apparently, like I measured in the way that any good designer does, you know, one centimetre is about one finger's width. So I kind of just put you know, some fingers down on my desk and was like, yeah, about that big. Um, But that didn't pan out. (laughs) It did not. It kind of symbolises our show, really, doesn't it? Just slightly off, I think, is a a better description. There you go. There you go. What do they say? Measure twice, cut once? That's what they said. So I printed these to put one on on my laptop and then kind of, you know, give out at the same time. There's no way I'm putting this on my laptop. (laughs) Amazing. So, yeah, I'm going to get these reprinted. Uh, But we're probably going to give these away. Uh, So (laughs) if anyone wants a a comically large sticker for their laptop. No, don't say that. uh, If you are within uh, walking distance of 47 East Kingsbrook Way in uh, Croydon, you can get yourself a sticker. Croydon as so well. come on down to Anna's house. Um, I'm sorry, Anna's flat. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you find yourself near King's Cross, uh, we will be standing on the corner by the public toilet. Handing out these stickers. Yeah. Also, don't approach me on the street, please. So, um, hello. Good morning. Let's get into some Watchtower Weekly. All right. Let's do it. First up, from The Verge, Boeing 747s still get critical updates via floppy disks. This is so clickbaity. Like, is anyone really surprised? I was I was surprised. Why? 747s are so old. Like, of course they do. And why would they change it? Yeah, I mean, there's a proper reason for this, right? Like, it, it can't be connected to a network and stuff. I mean, mainly because it's old, but also, like, there must be security things all around this. Yeah. The, yeah, the the fact that it's a floppy disk, is it, you, you'd think they'd upgrade that bit a bit. The fact that it's a flying machine that goes through the air that carries people. <laughs> I mean, not anymore. Oh, <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> no, they still do. They're just empty now. So, no, I think this is great. Like, I would be more concerned if the headline was like, Boeing updates its fleet of 747s to get critical updates from the internet. <laughs> I would be terrified. This is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you were to look at how to stop passengers interfering with flights, I think, you know, (laughs) having out-of-date technology might almost work in their favour sometimes. Absolutely. There is a large piece of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Do you remember a little while ago, the person who was able to use a USB mouse to kind of input a load of strings into an in-flight chat app? Yeah. And it crashed the entire in-flight entertainment system and he was doing this you know from his seat right think about how often the in-flight entertainment is down (laughs) yeah like i don't think that in-flight entertainment should be connected to the flight systems anyway no i think that that's quite a dangerous idea (laughs) yeah but i mean like you know that's quote-unquote modern you know the one that does use floppy disks that does make me nervous is the International Space Station. <laughs> really? Have you, have you heard of that? No. The uh, the International Space Station is all just loads of floppy disks. I mean, again, how much does it really have to do? Is this like Doom, like where you had to put in like seven floppy disks to install it? <laughs> I, I think so, yeah. Eight was the update oh, for okay. the uh, Boeing 747. So yeah, Ooh. apparently these contain navigation databases and they have to be updated every 28 days and an engineer visits each month with the latest updates. So my only thing is you got to hope that engineer 
shows up. <laughs> she's an ill. <laughs> doesn't have a day off. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking about the alternative, right? Like, what if this was just a USB stick? You just walk in, you plug it in, it installs the update, and you're done. Fine. But then how easy is it? Like, how much easier have you made it to get some sort of vulnerability installed in the system just by the sheer fact of using, like you said, Matt, a, a common technology? I really think that this is fine. Sorry, I was just reading about what modern planes do. Uh, modern plane actually apparently works on a fiber network where all the avionics plug into the network and are controlled by a pair of computers that kind of run flight critical software. Yeah, interesting. I just remember the, the time that I got in a plane and the dude was using Apple Maps on an iPad. <laughs> like that was his navigation software. I was in a, I was on a flight with both our CEO and, and one of our developers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just thought, I know all the problems with Apple Maps. I wasn't best pleased about that. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think a lot of planes still do use, you know, iPads for navigation and, and maps and things. So uh, Should we move on to a story from Wired? A billion or more Android devices are vulnerable to hacks that can turn them into spying tools by exploiting more than 400 vulnerabilities in Qualcomm's Snapdragon chip, researchers reported earlier this month. Snapdragon is included in about 40% of phones worldwide, with an estimated of 3 billion Android devices. That amounts to more than a billion phones. In the U.S. market, Snapdragons are embedded in around 90% of devices. The vulnerabilities can be exploited when a target downloads a video or other content that's rendered by the chip. Targets can also be attacked by installing malicious apps that require no permissions at all. This is wild. From this exploit, attackers can monitor locations, listen to nearby audio, all of that in real time, exfiltrate photos, videos. You can also make the phone completely unresponsive. Yeah, infections like this on Android are usually picked up by the operating system, but these are not. Infections can be completely hidden from the operating system in a way that makes kind of disinfecting very difficult. They've released a fix for a few of the flaws, but so far it hasn't been incorporated into Android OS or, or any Android device that, that uses Snapdragon. Yeah, this this one's a bad one. Yeah. They're kind of withholding technical details about the vulnerabilities, you know, for, for obvious reasons, you know, how they can be exploited, etc. But... Yes, they have dubbed the vulnerabilities Achilles. Yeah, that's a, an obvious name, Tris. This is a difficult one too, right? Because of the nature of the vulnerability, there's not much an owner of the Android device can actually do. Yeah, I don't think so. There's like nothing that they can like turn off or disable. Yeah. It's very scary that there is no kind of statement from Google or, or other phone manufacturers around something that you can do. But yeah, only download stuff from the Play Store, I think, is a is a good step one. Yeah. Regardless of, you know, if you really need Fortnite, probably probably <laughs> just stick to the Play Store. So next up we have Tea at the Ritz, soured by credit card scammers. And this is from the BBC. So diners at the Luxury Ritz Hotel in London have been targeted by extremely convincing scammers who posed as hotel staff to steal card details. The calls were convincing because it appeared to have come from the hotel's real phone number and scammers knew exactly when and where the reservation was. The fraudsters then tried to spend thousands of pounds at catalogue retailer Argos. Of course, <laughs> it was picked up, you know, by the credit card providers because someone who has a reservation at the Ritz does not shop at Argos. <laughs> <laughs> I imagined that they have some sort of elaborate online booking system that the Ritz have taken a long while to get used to and then something like this happens and then the old person behind the, the counter that usually does the, the reservations just goes, I told you we should have kept the book. You know, that type of thing. <laughs> this is, um, you know, the second biggest scam uh, at the Ritz. The first being uh, trying a bit of jam and then saying, can I have the, the other jam? And then keeping both. 
I, I see that a lot at the afternoon tea. I have, I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a quintessentially British story, isn't it? Tea at the Ritz, but it all goes wrong. Yeah, I, I just don't think you should ever give payment information over the phone. No. There is a certain generational thing of, of giving payment information over the phone, and it just makes me uncomfortable every time. There, there are some industries that, that don't do it any other way because they want to take payment before your appointment, essentially. I've had to do it a couple of times, but it, it makes me very cautious. Like, I, I had one payment provider that, that asked me to essentially send it over email. Like, everything about my card, all the, the security number on the back and all that type of thing. Yeah. I, I understand that on the credit card provider side, you know, obviously they know who licenses these, these machines. So if anybody uses the information that's actually on your card without your PIN number or anything, like, they know who owns the card machine that that goes back to. But I bet it takes a long while to go to the, the scammer and find the ownership of that machine, etc. Yeah. Apparently this was quite convincing as well because the caller ID matched up. So Dr. Jessica Barker said, People tend to trust caller ID, which is perfectly understandable because in theory it appears to authenticate the caller. On top of that, when a scam like this involves insider information, it adds an air of legitimacy and authority. So the fact that they knew when the reservation was and everything, it kind of makes these scams more effective. Yeah, I think they use kind of any little piece of information that they have, right? Like the fact that they know sometimes your passwords that have been in data breaches and so they can kind of, you know, scam you out of stuff by using that that little bit of information. It's always something. But uh, yeah, I always enjoy hearing from Dr. Jessica Barker. Yeah, friend of the show. I very, very awkwardly bumped into her at RSA this year. <laughs> I kind of mumbled over my word. Hello, hello. You know. Oh, we had you on the show. <laughs> yeah, oh, I didn't quite get those words oh, out, okay. but uh, it was close. Anybody who meets me in person will know I am not. <laughs> this is edited. You know, I, I am very awkward in person. Aren't we all? <laughs> so moving on, we have a new segment, which is called This Week at One Password. I kind of like to see this as a backstage access to all things on password. We hope to cover things like new features, how we make one password, user testing, and what it's like to be part of the team. I know that this was something one of our founders, Dave, wanted for the podcast at the very beginning. And we also get quite a few requests from listeners who would like to hear more about one password itself. So hopefully this will be a welcome new segment to the show. So we've got a new segment. We are going to be sitting down with Mitch, who has been working hard at bringing us 1Password for Linux. That's right, 1Password for Linux. This is a very exciting new venture, which is planned for official release later this year. Mr. Mitch Cohen, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Ruth. It is great to be on this podcast for the second time after a very long time. I do realize it's a little early for you. Yeah, thank you for, for joining us. So what's your what's your week been like so far, Mitch? How are things going in Linux land? Well, this week has been pretty normal. I would say that two weeks ago was probably the best time to ask that question, although also a time when I wouldn't have been able to take the time to answer. <laughs> Most of the, the buzz from the announcement has, has died down, so now we're just sort of getting back to coding and not talking to people. <laughs> <laughs> so 1Password for Linux, this is 
I think our most requested uh, feature, if you can extend the definition of feature a little bit, this is our most requested feature by far, also responsible for the longest forum post in our history. So my first question is, like, why now? How did the wheels get set in motion for this? Yeah, so it's it's funny that we think of it as a feature because, of course, it's really like the question is to use 1Password at all on Linux with all of its features, right? So when you put it that way, it's it's a tall ask. And it's it's one reason why, as a feature thread, it's, it's hard to sort of check it off as complete ever because building a whole 1Password app is, you know, a process that doesn't ever really end. But the reason that we started now, as opposed to, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago, was just because a a whole number of things came together. Actually, one of the biggest changes was that in the company, we started to get a whole lot of Linux users. And that just wasn't possible a few years ago. And and also, we didn't didn't really need Linux users. But now we have, you know, we have whole DevOps teams. We have our, our business sort of integrations team. We have dozens of people who use Linux themselves, and they needed to do their work. And, and that meant that they needed to use 1Password. And luckily, it was be more and more possible thanks to the browser extension 1Password X, thanks to the command line tool. But at the end of the day, people just really wanted a desktop app to open up. So there was there was internal demand for it. And coupled with our advances in, in tooling and technology, which sort of allowed us to make this happen. And I think that's part of what we're going to talk about, sort of what changed technologically that, that let us make this new app. Yeah, Absolutely. There's a lot of stuff that has sort of happened literally behind the scenes of this project that are enabling it to move forward. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of our goals with the back end of this app? Yes. So th- there are lots of moving moving plates on the, both the back end and the front end. But the basic idea is that it's hard for us to ever justify making a new app because generally that involves getting together a team of you know at least like five to ten people and writing literally from scratch an entire 1Password app. And we've only done that a handful of times in our history. And what we're doing a bit differently now is we started this project, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot on the podcast going forward, called The Core. And The Core is written in in Rust, a programming language which we all just learned. And the idea is to build sort of a headless, fully functional 1Password client with all the features that we can then use to build apps on top of without having to invest that sort of initial effort into building an app from scratch. And because we were building that core anyway, and because on the front end we had teams of people building components, we were able to sort of take these two pieces and say, hey, we can build lots of new apps out of these, and one of them is going to be our first desktop Linux app. In fact, it began kind of as a challenge, like we were at the end of a a little conference working on the browser extension. And I sat down with Andrew Beyer, who leads the extension team, and we said, what if by tomorrow we could have sort of a working proof of concept of a Linux desktop app? And we didn't really expect it to happen. But the next day, we just said, hey, everyone, we got something to show you. And and even at that point, we weren't sure if it was going to go anywhere, but it became one password for Linux. Yeah, I always get a kick out of some of the, the Skunkworks projects that yield some pretty big moves like this. What will the initial release of this desktop app look like? like what, what features can our Linux users expect out of this? So the important thing about this app is that they can expect 1Password. It will look and feel like 1Password. It'll have all the features of 1Password, including you know editing your items and organizing, which is a lot of what people do with the desktop app, Watchtower to manage your security. And if we can even meet that goal, that's really important. Like We don't want people to think, oh, well, I have the Linux app, but it's not the same. It, it's not as good as, as the Mac app or the Windows app. So making 1Password and, and making the full 1Password experience is really important to us. In terms of specifically how it would integrate with Linux, there are definitely things that we're paying attention to because we use Linux and we want it to integrate in our own workflows. And examples of that are 
so Linux, I don't, I don't know if people listening to this this podcast know, but Linux has not one, but two clipboards. Like if you copy and paste, it can go to two different places. And we're making very sure that one password can copy to both of those places or just one of them if, if you don't want to copy to both. And also that it can clear sensitive data from them after 90 seconds, just like the Mac app and the Windows app. So that's sort of a, a little thing that like if we didn't really think about it, the Linux app might not get that right. But if you use Linux and you expect that, you're going to get that experience. I think that that's one of the larger challenges that we've set for ourselves. And one of the things that I'm most proud of with this project and with the core in general is that we want to create a really great 1Password app, but we are also trying to create a really great Linux app. And I think that too often companies aim for sort of that lowest common denominator where they can just check a box off. Be like, well, we recompiled this other app and uh, that we had for this other platform and it's fine, you know, yeah, now that we're shipping on two platforms. And we certainly could have done that, but that's not in our DNA. And I love that we're taking the time to invest in making this a really great Linux app and integrating in with the you know, the system and, and stuff like that. Are there any other sort of system integrations that you've experimented with early on that you think might make the, the final release? Yes. So another system integration that we're currently exploring is the ability to unlock the app with your Linux user account, which doesn't sound that exciting until you realize that that sort of enables you to use biometrics to unlock 1Password if you have set up biometrics to unlock your Linux desktop or laptop. And that's still something that it's, it's not quite as slick as the experience you might get with Touch ID, but if you do put in the work to set it up, it can be a convenient and, and secure way to quickly unlock 1Password. So that's something that we're experimenting with. We also are taking pains to make sure that this app sort of works on any desktop environment because there isn't just one desktop Linux. There are dozens of different distributions and configurations, and we want to make sure that when you launch this app, it doesn't look like it was just designed for one of them. So on Linux, there's this very popular concept of using tiling window managers where you don't drag your windows around the screen and resize them. They just sort of snap into place. And we constantly do testing with our interfaces to make sure that they sort of respond properly and, and tile properly. An exciting example of that, I think, is large type, which for the first time in, in 1Password for Linux actually is responsive. If you tile it to the side of your screen, it'll fill it up and, and resize and reflow all the text and everything. And it was actually a lot of work to get that to work properly and to deal with edge cases. But it's better than having it just sort of pop up in the middle of your screen when you're using i3 and you just want to see your large type on one side and another window on the other side. So we, we put in the effort to make that happen. One of the, the other things that I really love that we tend to do is we do involve our customers in the development efforts a bit through public releases and, and preview releases and stuff like that. So a couple of weeks ago, we did push out the 1Password for Linux development preview. And we had gone out there with you know, what we thought was a pretty solid initial offering, understanding that we were going to hear from our customers about things that they thought were important and things that they wanted to see. Do you want to talk about some of the things that we added on the heels of the development preview that we didn't necessarily anticipate being something people would ask for? Well, as I said before, the, the thing about Linux is that there are so many configurations that you really can't test them all in advance. And in fact, we found out about configurations we didn't even know about in advance. We found out about distributions that we didn't know existed. And now we not only know that they exist, but we're also testing on them. We have VMs set up for Zorin and Solus and NixOS. And these are words I didn't know before, but now 1Password for Linux is running on them. 
there were there were people with unusual configurations like their their temp directory was was protected and the app wouldn't launch so we had to go replicate those configurations and get it all to work and by far the biggest change in the past 2 weeks has just been making sure that distributions that didn't work now work and that no matter what kind of linux desktop configuration you have you're going to be able to use one password on it and have a good experience so another re- request that we kept getting was for more package formats, not just for more distributions. And we tried to have as many as possible right out the door. We have our own apt repository for Debian and Ubuntu. We have our own RPM repository. But then on day one, we had people asking for flatbacks and for snaps and for AUR for, for Arch Linux. And we really want to make sure to provide these packages officially if we can, even though it's, it's great to see the community build packages on their own because we want to provide side packages that people can verify to make sure that they come from us. And we just want the experience of supporting these different distributions. So one thing that was, was quite exciting was we worked with Canonical to get 1Password on the Snap Store as a Snap. And I had never done that before. I hadn't actually used Snaps before, but it was a pretty great experience. And it, it in some ways, it felt sort of as slick as the Mac App Store. And I'm, I'm now excited to not just publish snaps, but also to use them on Linux myself. Yeah, that's super cool. So we're also introducing some fun things to help open source teams. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the thing about Linux is it's it's not just an operating system, of course, it's, it's a philosophy. And we don't want to just put an app on Linux and not sort of participate in the free software community in a meaningful way. So we have this initiative now called 1Password for Open Source, which allows you and, in fact, your team to get a complimentary 1Password account if you build an open source project. And really, that can mean a team of basically any size. If you show us your GitHub repository and show us what you're working on, we will we'll give you and your team 1Password for free. And that includes sort of all the uh, the business features. We've already gotten quite a bit of adoption and excitement, but I think for the Linux community, it's even more exciting because that's where a lot of these teams are. And until now, they haven't really had the option to use 1Password on Linux. Now they can both use it and also benefit from their contributions to the, the free software community. Yeah, I love that. I really do. And you're right. Like we have seen some cool adoption of this. And what's neat is that if you're running an open source project or you're a member of an open source project, you get in touch with us. We we get you set up with an account. You know, you can now start using 1Password yourself within the realm of that account. But then also you can utilize all the team features for sharing secrets among that team as needed. If there's sensitive information that you're passing around, you don't necessarily want to go beyond the project members. Like you can do that, right? There might be signing keys. There might be other things that you want to keep secure. This is obviously a great way to do that. So yeah, I'm pretty stoked that we're, we're offering this for folks. Yeah. On that note, we are interested in how people are using 1Password for Linux, what their use cases are. Many of them will be the same as the use cases for all of our apps, but we expect people on Linux to have some pretty creative integrations, and we want to be able to support those. So a big focus of our development preview is feedback. There's a, a little ladybug menu, if you install it, that'll take you straight to our forum where you can give us feedback. We're also running a development preview survey, and we'd love to know as early as possible sort of what you're using the app for, what you want to use the app for, and the service, so we can sort of build the app out in the right direction, because we have our own roadmap, but an awful lot of it comes from what our users ask for. Yeah, for sure. How will 1Password for Linux advance as time goes on then? Like, are there any future plans that you're excited about? Yes, and I can't talk about all of them, but we're really looking at sort of pushing the integrations with Linux further and and deeper than what I've talked about. One example is using the free desktop standards, systemd and dbus, to integrate deeply into the login process so that we have really fine control over when the app locks and unlocks in a way that I think 
most Linux apps don't really do successfully. Like it's really important for us that we lock properly when your device goes to sleep. And on Linux, there's sort of, until recently, there hasn't been a good standard way to do that. But now we can integrate into these sort of new declarative services to get precise information about the state that your desktop is in. Another area that I'm really interested in is connecting to Linux's ability to mount file systems. I, I don't know a less nerdy way to say that, but if you've used Linux before, sort of everything is a folder, including network locations. And I think that's a natural fit for 1Password to be able to like open an FTP server or an SSH server just by, by clicking on it in 1Password and using the mount capabilities of Linux just to get that all set up. And some of that's actually already in the development preview, but we're really going to explore that and push it as far as we can to help you quickly get access to sensitive information from 1Password on your desktop. All right. Very cool. Where can people go to learn more about 1Password for Linux and stay up to date and such? The best place to start, I think, is the announcement post on the forum, which I guess will be in the show notes. We are using the forum to communicate with users as much as possible. Again, sort of in the spirit of the free software community. Like, we don't want this to be a one-way relationship where you email us and you get a response from sort of our customer support. We want this to be sort of an ongoing development process where we both respond to bugs, feature requests, and and like I said, use case scenarios. And we all sort of build the app out together. Yeah, that's great. It will be in the show notes. You can also go to discussions.agilebits.com. So finally, Mitch, just to wrap things up, What's your favorite thing about working at 1Password? Well, this might be the pandemic speaking, but my favorite thing about 1Password is the office. I miss it. It had kombucha on tap. Two flavors of kombucha on tap. I don't have that at home. I'm not going to get that at home. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that. Well, that's great, Mitch. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to have you on. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with in closing? For a lot of people listening, I'm, I'm sure you've tried Linux at some point in the past and maybe thought it was weird and janky. And give it a try. It's it's changed a lot. It's pretty cool. There, there are even things that Apple and Microsoft can learn. And I've had a great time both using it and building software for it over the past few months. Awesome. Thanks, Mitch. Nice. It was great to hear from Mitch. There. Living the booch life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Anna, I think it is your turn to play your passwords, right? It is, yeah. I have followed through on my promise and I'm going Harry Potter themed. So, get your buzzers at the ready. Wait, there's buzzers? <laughs> no, we're just going to add them. We're going to add them in later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, great. I'm just going to make a ding noise. Like with your mouth? I, I don't know. All right. So, real quick, how this works is the game starts. Anna reads one word, tells us how many times that word has been exploited via some sort of hack or, or something else. And then Anna will read another word. And we have to decide if that word has been exposed more times or less times, <laughs> more or fewer than the word previous. Can, can we just agree on the verbiage higher and lower? Because, higher and lower. Uh, yeah, I think that's easier. <laughs> yes. You can also play along at home as well if you go yeah, to pwned.com forward slash passwords. And uh, just know that all the passwords are lowercase and all one word. Oh, fantastic. That helps. Okay. Uh, Anna, what is our first word? So going pretty standard here. Harry Potter, all one word, was breached 54,198 times. Yikes, that's a lot of people using that bad password. Yeah. That is a lot, yeah. The next password is Hermione. Is she more popular or less popular than our dear Harry Potter here? Oh, we've already changed the verbiage to less. (laughs) (laughs) I think this one's more difficult to spell than Harry Potter, so I'm going lower. Oh, I'm going higher. You're going split. So one of us is going to be out. (laughs) So this is less or lower than Harry Potter. Gosh darn it. I thought that... (laughs) 
Of course. No, stop like, no one can spell Hermione. Hermogeny. <laughs> well, I'm out. Oh, yeah, Ruth's out. All right. So following Hermione, we have, we have Hogwarts. It's easier to spell. I'm going higher. You are incorrect. <laughs> well, short game this week, folks. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> really? I, it, Hogwarts is much easier to spell. Sorry. Matt, nah, you're out. Uh, all right. Well, if you're playing along at home, we're terrible at this. I prepared some really good ones later on. Do you want to give us each a mulligan and we'll keep going? Yeah, I think we get one more life. Yeah, go on. You have one life. All right, all right. Let's go. Magic, more or less popular than Hogwarts? It's got to be more popular, right? As a password? Ugh. Magic. Oh, do you know what? This is affected by the minimum requirements, right? Yes, that's my thought. Ooh. Okay, I'm going I'm going less then. Me too. I am also going lower. I'm going lower, <laughs> less, fewer. It is more popular. Gosh darn it. Well, we're out. Oh, this is a terrible game. We are just terrible at this game. <laughs> this is a terrible game. We shouldn't play this anymore. All right, we'll, we'll get better. We'll get better. It's fine. Oh, <laughs> we're playing anymore or are we done? No, that's it. That's it. We have failed. Oh, man. I'm sorry, Anna. Maybe we continue the Harry Potter streak next week. Can yeah. I save some of these for next time? <laughs> well. I mean, from the looks of the show notes, Anna's got like, you know, another 10 of these and we did three. Yeah, and I did whittle these down. I tried not to be too geeky about this, but, you know, my Harry <laughs> Potter fandom did come out a little bit. Right, so Wingardium Leviosa is it in It is next. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have that as a password? It is no one... Like, there's no way that y you can spell that correctly every time from your memory. So, like, I don't, I don't understand this. Well, no. you've bitterly disappointed me. <laughs> Not for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Amazing. Well, no house points for you guys. <laughs> With old. Yeah. I see what you did there. That was clever. I yeah. know. Some say I have my moments. <laughs> All right. Well, this was fun. It was wonderful talking to you. Uh, by the way, the 50th show, wonderful. I think that went very well. Better than expected. Exceeded expectations. Hang on. You both gave me absolute <laughs> crap about that idea. Like I know. Turns out wasn't terrible and then as soon as we got into it i was terrible <laughs> you were terrible but i i was very comfortable i thought it was great just carried the show like normal <laughs> all right well listen right. love you both this was great love all you right. guys we'll talk again soon bye bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye.